1969, when the Apollo 11 mission returned after landing the first humans on the moon, a rather excited President uh, Richard Nixon exclaimed, This is the greatest week since the beginning of the world, the creation. Nothing has changed the world more than this mission. He's a bit excited. Uh, Only a few days later, Billy Graham uh, publicly corrected the president by saying, uh, it was a very great day, one for all men to celebrate, but I don't think it was the greatest day in history. And then he went on to ask if President Nixon had ever heard of Christmas or Easter. You see, by any measure of human history, Billy Graham's got it right, doesn't he? What year is it this year? It's 2018 AD. 2018 years since God became flesh in Jesus. Now, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, Jesus Christ, he demands our attention because quite simply, no one else on earth, no one else throughout all history has had, has had the impact that he has. You have to stop and consider him for at least some point, given the significance of this man, Jesus. And we might be wondering initially, what is it about this tradie who grew up in a fourth-rate town in a third-rate country? What is it about this guy that's causing such a fuss that we still live in his shadow today? Why is it that this life, this short life, why is it it stands at the centre of all history? Well, the answer is caught up in the Bible's doctrine of the incarnation. That is, God becoming man, taking on human flesh. The moment where God stepped onto the stage of history, the moment, that was the moment when the world changed. And to better understand it, we're going to look at the who, the how and the why. And there's uh, notes there on the outline that will help you as we go. Uh, And to begin, quite simply, the who of the incarnation is that Jesus was both God and man, or more specifically, he was both fully God and fully man. And now we'll begin with the fully God bit, because that's probably the most contentious. A lot of people, they're really happy with Jesus being a man, the idea that he was this national hero, or that he was a revolutionary type who kind of gave it to the stuck-up religious types. Um, A lot of people liked that Jesus was a good example for us to follow, maybe a wise teacher. But God? That's a little over the top. That's That's going too far. Let's just settle down. But the Bible's actually really clear that Jesus is fully God. Uh, Now, the first uh, passage that Rolanda read for us, uh, John chapter 1, that was all about the Word becoming flesh, and that's probably one of the most well-known passages. But there's another one that we're going to look at in uh, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, we've, we've hit Colossians chapter 1 a few times in this series, but here we have verses 15 to 17. Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rules or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Now that's a pretty obvious statement about Jesus being God. He made all things. Um, In him all things hold together. He is before all things. 
And in case we're a little bit slow on the uptake, Paul, the writer to the letter to the Colossians, uh, he spells it out even further a couple of verses time in verse 19. He says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness to dwell in him. Now it doesn't say that, Jesus, that God was pleased to have uh, his fullness, just, just his fullness dwell in him. That would have been enough. But all his fullness, Paul is emphatic and he's really laboring the point that Jesus, he's not just a, a cut down version of God. Jesus is not a sampler. He's not a trailer. He's not a teaser. He's not a preview. Jesus is the full blown extended version of God in all his fullness. Which is why at the end of uh, John's gospel, when Thomas realizes who Jesus is and he falls down at Jesus' feet and he cries out to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't say, oh, shucks, Thomas, that's, that's really kind of you, but um, I think you're getting a little bit carried away there. Jesus stands there and he accepts the praise, which is shocking and blasphemous if it isn't true. Jesus accepts the praise because he is fully aware that he himself was fully God. Now at this point some people might object or they might be a little bit confused. uh, And they might do that by looking at certain parts of the Gospels where, um, where it doesn't seem like Jesus is fully God. You know those parts of the Gospels where Jesus asks people questions. Uh, How much food did you bring? Uh, Who touched me? And they sound like legitimate questions. He's not playing games with these people. Uh, he, he genuinely doesn't know the answer. And so he's asking people these questions. And so some people will say, well, there you go. How can he be fully God? The, the stuff he doesn't know. He must have at least given up some of his God-type bits when he became a man. And then some people will go, well, what about those, those, those verses in Philippians chapter 2 where it talks about Jesus emptying himself, making himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant? And some people will suggest that those verses are saying that Jesus wasn't fully God, that he emptied himself of his God type stuff and just became a man. Now, there might be a bit that's attractive about those ideas, but that, that's pushing the Bible further than it wants to go. The context of those verses in uh, Philippians uh, is that it's all about glory and honour, and that's what Jesus empties himself of. Rather than considering equality with God something to be grasped, he emptied himself of that. He humbled himself from a position of honour and took on a position of a servant. The passage is not saying that Jesus gave up any of his God-type stuff. It's saying that he gave up his God-type prestige, not his God-type abilities. Because what the New Testament wants us to see is that Jesus doesn't reduce his divinity at all when he becomes a man. He doesn't reduce his divinity at all. He restrains his divinity. He doesn't reduce it. He restrains it. And there's a really important difference there. You see, Jesus was fully God every minute of every day, but he chose to only ever draw on his divinity when God the Father said so. He chose only to draw on his divinity when God the Father said so. And so in that monumental act of humility, Jesus only ever did and said what God the Father told him to do. Uh, we looked at uh, Matthew, Matthew's gospel a little bit earlier and we looked at that passage where Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. What Satan is doing is he's tempting Jesus to draw on his divinity for his own good. And to step outside the Father's will and plan for him. 
for Jesus to take the initiative with his divinity and use it to serve himself. But Jesus only ever did and said what God the Father told him to do and say. We see things uh, like this in John's Gospel. It's all over John's Gospel. Jesus says things like, uh, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. I do nothing on my own, but speak what the Father has taught me. I do not speak of my own account, but what the Father who sent me commanded me to say and how to say it. And you see what Jesus is saying, you see that that's why Jesus doesn't know everything or didn't know everything. And that's why he asked genuine questions of people. It's because God the Father had not told him those things and he was submitting himself, restraining his divinity out of obedience to his Father. And even in, in, in greater humility, Jesus, though fully God, chose to deliberately not draw on his divinity, to not take the initiative, but to wait on God and wait on the Father's will and timing for all things. Uh, now, I'm laboring this point a bit, I know, uh, but I reckon this is at the heart, at the heart of the amazing thing called the Incarnation. And just think about it with me. Come to the cross with me. There he is on the cross. Jesus, he has been spat on. He has been tortured. He has been flogged within an inch of his life. He has been mocked. He is kind of caked in blood and dirt and sweat and the spit of the soldiers. And he is fully God up there on the cross. Just the thought had to cross his mind and everyone and everything would have been history. And the thought never crossed his mind. Because he didn't let it. Because the Father didn't want it to. The Father didn't will for things to happen that way. Now, I cannot begin to imagine how much Jesus must love the Father. I cannot begin to imagine how much he must love you and me to remain obedient to the Father's will. Jesus was fully God. His divinity was never reduced, but it was lovingly and humbly and deliberately restrained in obedience to the Father and in, in love for you and for me. Which adds to the other side of the equation, uh, that he was fully human. Uh, because you see, uh, just like you and I, uh, he had to ask questions about things. Jesus he had to learn things, he had to restrain Uh, Because he restrained his divinity, he had to rely on God, the Father, for all things. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 says that he shared in our humanity. He was made like his brothers in every way. Uh, So uh, please don't think that Jesus uh, went through this life relatively untouched by things uh, compared to you and me. That kind of Jesus was like, uh, he was like Superman where kind of just underneath his robes, if you kind of could lift Jesus' robes back, there'd be this big J on his chest. Uh, kind of this superhero just kind of in disguise. Don't think that Jesus was somehow, because he was God, he was immune from the things that hurt us. Now the Bible is clear, Jesus shared in our humanity in every way. He was a mammal. I don't mean a mammal like a middle-aged man in Lycra. He was a mammal. He was a human being. He was a creature. And the Gospels tell us that he got tired and he got hungry 
And he got thirsty and sometimes he felt joy and, and sometimes he felt deep sadness. Sometimes he was astonished by what he saw and sometimes he got really angry. And sometimes he was overcome with emotions, overcome with grief or overcome with joy. Now there was one time in the Gospels where Jesus was absolutely terrified that he was virtually convulsing with uncontrollable grief. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us he sympathises with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way just as we are. Just as we are. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus faced every specific temptation. Obviously, he didn't face the specific temptations of, that come from being a woman or being married or being elderly or being retrenched. Uh, he was never in those specific life situations. But the root of all temptation is basically the same thing. The root of all temptation is the basic struggle as to whether or not you're going to obey God or not. At the heart of all temptation is whether you're going to trust him or not trust him. Whether you will do what God wants, even if it's going to be difficult or even if it's going to hurt. You see, Jesus knows exactly what life is like. He knows its joys. He knows its sorrows. He knows because he was fully man. Fully God and fully man. I guess uh, an obvious question that a lot of us might ask at this point is how? How does that work? How could he be both things at the same time without, com- without one nature compromising the other? How does it work psychologically? How does it work physiologically? Uh, and to be honest, you can get a doctrine book out and lots of ink has been spilt trying to sort out these issues. Uh, but I want to make one simple point uh, this morning and hopefully the outline that you have in front will be helpful. Because I want you to look down at the outline and I want you to look at point two, the how of the incarnation. And do you notice anything different about point two compared to points uh, one and and point three? Is there anything different? You can call it out. Sorry? No sub points? Even more? No Bible verses. That's right. There's no Bible references here. And the point I simply want to make is that the Bible doesn't go there. The Bible doesn't go there to explain how this works. Because in the end, the Bible isn't interested in telling us how this works. But what it's interested in telling us is why it happened. Why it happened. Because that's where we really begin to see how extraordinary Jesus is. And in the New Testament, we get two uh, whys in particular. Two big whys that dominate uh, the first is that Jesus, um, being fully God and fully man, he was, he was fully God and fully man, to, so as to show us God. To show us God. Uh, we see this uh, really clearly in uh, John chapter 1, verse 18, that last verse uh, that Rolanda read for us. Um, it says this in John uh, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, whom God himself who is God himself and in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. He has made him known. You see what I'm saying there? No one has seen God. No one. So the only one who is qualified to show us God, it's got to be God himself. And that's what happened. God himself has turned up. He has made himself known in Jesus. Uh, On Tuesday night, I went out uh, for dinner 
with a few people from church. We went and got burgers in, in town. And as I was, I went to the register to pay my bill. Um, and then I looked up and on the TV, there was a basketball game. I like basketball. And then next to the TV was a jersey. It was a signed jersey. Uh, it was Stephen Adams' singlet hanging there. Uh, he's, he's a Kiwi. He's the only Kiwi to play in the NBA. He's kind of a big deal. And then when I went to walk out of the place, uh, this guy stood up in front of me. And he, this guy was tall. I mean, really, really tall. And I, I, I've been thinking about basketball. And I've been thinking about Stephen Adams. And I thought, this guy's really tall. He should play basketball like Stephen Adams. And then he turns around. And it's Stephen Adams. In all seven foot, 116 kilos of glory, standing there right in front of me. And he was huge. I had all these kind of really cool things that I could have said to him that I thought about about five minutes later. Um, but you can build up the impression of someone. You can see them on TV. You can have information about them. But it's not until you actually see them. It's not until you actually have them standing in front of you. It's not until Stephen Adams stood there in front of me did I get a sense of who he was and how massive he is. It's a pretty scary looking guy, actually. Um, no one has ever seen God. But God has made himself known. And God and Jesus can make God known because he is God. He is fully God. All of this which also helps us to understand why he had to be fully human as well. Uh, because in order to show God to us, uh, the most effective way is if uh, it, it makes sense for him to be a man. To show God to us in a way that we can relate to. In a way that we can understand. Uh, the book of 1 John starts with these words. Uh, the book of 1 John starts with these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, that is Jesus. You see, Jesus was fully man. If you were there, you could see him. You could hear him, you could touch him, you could see the way that he lived and as a result he was thoroughly effective at showing God to us. God became one of us, he walked in our shoes for a while so we could see the stuff that he did, the choices that he made, the people that he hung out with. And in John's Gospel there's almost not a chapter that goes by without uh, Jesus, where Jesus doesn't uh, say something like, Kind of, look, you want to know what God is like? Look at me. You know, you know, want to know what God is like? Well, look at the things that I do. Look at the things that I say. Look at the, the things I think. Look at the priorities that I have. Because what Jesus does and says and thinks and the way that he relates to people is the way that God thinks and speaks and the way that he relates to people. So why did he have to be fully God and fully man? Well, he had to be fully God to show us God because no one else has seen him. And he had to be fully man so that he could be the best possible way of showing God to us. And there's a second reason why the incarnation had to happen. There's a second why. And it wasn't just to show God to us, it was also to save us, to save us from God. You see, if Jesus was not fully God, he would not be able to pay for the sins of the world. If he was not fully God, he would not be able to pay for the sins of the world. Think about it this way. If Jesus had just been a man, a very good man, even a perfect man, then his death would only be able to pay for the sins of, of one other person. 
One perfect life for one imperfect life. That's how it works. Furthermore, if Jesus wasn't God, then God would be totally unfair in punishing Jesus for us. Where is the justice in punishing an innocent third party because of the way that we have offended God? Where is the justice of involving another innocent person in our problem? But you see, because Jesus is God, he is appropriate to deal with our problem, to deal with the problem between us and God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. (coughs) In other words, the punish for our sins wasn't meted out on just this innocent third party. Rather, God absorbed it in Jesus. He absorbed it in himself. Now, this is worth realizing. On one level, when we look at the cross, the the Bible presents the image of a a, a ransom or a sacrifice. And and that helps us to understand... uh, the sorts of things that was happening on the cross. But there's also things happening on the cross that go to a whole nother level. And at that level, I don't think we could ever fully hope to understand, but we can catch a glimpse of it. You see, as Jesus hung there on the cross for you and me, something extraordinary was happening within God himself. That as Jesus, the Son of God, hung there on the timber in Palestine, meanwhile in heaven, something traumatic of cosmic proportions is happening inside God. Within God himself, God satisfies both his sense of justice and his desire to have love and mercy. God takes that upon himself. And it could only happen if Jesus was fully God. And it could only happen also if Jesus was also fully man. Jesus needs to be fully man in order to be our substitute, in order to be our representative. He had to be fully man. Uh, One of the perils of online grocery shopping is when the shop runs out of the the product that you order and they replace it with a substitute. Um, We had a shocker. One time they replaced our baby spinach for blackberries. Um, That's a substitute that just doesn't work, right? Uh, a salad for a berry. Um, my sandwich wasn't quite right. Uh, they're just not the same. And with Jesus, he needs to be fully man in order to be an appropriate substitute for you and for me. He needs to be fully man to be an appropriate substitute. Hebrews chapter 2 says this, Since the children have flesh and blood... He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. He needed to share in our flesh and blood. It is not the angels he helps, it says in Hebrews chapter two, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them in every way, fully human in every way, that in order he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Do you see the point there? If humanity is the one in trouble, if humanity is the one needing a representative, if humanity is the one needing a substitute, then it needs to be a human being who rescues them, who who represents them, who is a substitute for them. Uh, If someone is trapped in a burning building, you don't send a a surf lifesaver in with their speedos to, 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 to rescue them. 
And likewise, if someone is drowning at the beach, you don't get a fireman and all their heavy clothing and gear to dive into the surf and rescue them. The type of rescue defines the sort of rescuer you need. In order for humanity to be rescued, you needed a human, a substitute, a representative. And so he who was fully God became fully man. So as a man, he could be our substitute. But as, a God, as God, he could be the genuine substitute for the whole world. Now, it's, this is heavy going, right? This is, not, um, this is hard work. Uh, some of this stuff might seem pretty abstract to you, a little bit out there. Uh, maybe you're feeling like uh, you're thinking too hard and your head is sore um, and you might be uh, just tempted to give up or maybe you've already given up and you've put this in the too hard basket. Um, but can I urge you to come back and, and come back and think a little bit more with me to consider the, the, these amazing truths because they're worth getting to grips with. It is worth working this out because the payoff is a massive The payoff is huge. The comfort that comes from understanding Jesus as fully God and fully man, the comfort that comes is extraordinary. Because the comfort that we can have, the comfort is that we can have confidence with God. We can have confidence with God. If you've been paying attention this morning, you see lots of references have come from Hebrews, uh, because that book, probably more than any other book in the Bible, uh, gives us a, the fullest explanation of the incarnation. And what you find in the book of Hebrews is that the point of it all, the, the point of the doctrine of the incarnation, where it always comes back to, the bottom line of the whole things, is this amazing confidence. This amazing confidence we can now have with God. Here are some verses from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, uh, 10.35, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Uh, 13, verse 6. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? They are stunning statements of our confidence. We, we're, we're trapped in death by our sins. We heard that two weeks ago. We sit under God's judgment. We heard that last week. And yet, because of Jesus, fully God and fully man, we can stroll into the presence of God with confidence. We can come before the, the God who made the heavens and the earth with confidence. We can stroll into his, his presence with complete confidence and and. He will not be surprised to find us there. We will not be rejected by the God that we find there. We can have complete confidence with God because Jesus was fully God and fully man. He has shown God to us and he has rescued us from the wrath of God that we deserve. So you can have confidence before God. But we can also have confidence that God knows what life is like. God knows what you are going through, what you have been through. I don't, know where, I don't know what life is like for you at the moment. Are you stressed about your job? 
Are you down about your relationships? Are you worried about your financial situation? Are you concerned about your health or the health of someone that you love? Are you suffering grief or pain? Do you just feel like you're at the end of your tether? Well, we have a God who knows. Who knows what that is like. We have a God who understands that. And that's not just an empty hallmark statement, just kind of kind of empty platitudes to make you feel better. He really knows. We have a God who gets it. Because Jesus was fully human. He is like us in every way. Now when soldiers return from the battlefield, they often find it really hard to reconnect with life back home. Uh, The people back home, they don't seem to get it. They don't seem to get, they've not seen what they've seen, they've not smelt what they've smelt, they've not heard what they've heard. The people at home just don't get it. But they say one thing that makes a massive difference to soldiers returning home is reunions. Getting together with the other soldiers who sat in the same trenches, the soldiers that, that sat there with the same fear that they felt. And these soldiers come from all over a country, they, they're, they're all different professions, all different walks of life. But when they get together, they get together with people who get it, who know what they've experienced, who know what life is like. Jesus has been in the trenches. He knows what life is like for you. He knows what life is like. God knows what life is like. The reformer John Calvin put it this way. Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. God has shown himself to you in Jesus. God has saved you in Jesus. So you can have great confidence with God if you have come to Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, when we first rebelled against you and broke this world, Uh, You did not back away, uh, but you came into this world. You took on flesh. You came as Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And you did it, Lord, to show us what you are like. And you did it, Lord, to save us, to save us from the wrath we deserve. Lord, we praise you for the confidence that it gives us the confidence before you, the confidence that you know what life is like. Lord, give us great comfort from that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.